and welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators. Please check out my website at NARC Troopers, where you will find many podcasts, articles about recovery from narcissistic abuse, and even a video vlog. The title of today's discussion is going to be Forgive Them, For They Know Not What They Do. This is an elegy for all of the dead, empty, hollow people who have personality disorders and who dwell in a place of delusion. When your life is a smoldering heap of ashes, every dream destroyed, the dagger still dangling from your chest, and the awareness that you have been completely and utterly erased, it is difficult to forgive the one who was the author of this tragedy. It is unfair and unjust to think that one human could completely eradicate another human and never even look back. Not a glance over the shoulder, nothing. The first impulse, I think, is to seek justice, demand justice, go after them and seek some kind of revenge for every broken promise, for every betrayal, for every cold and ruthless twist of the knife, and for the ultimate betrayal, when they hit the reset button and made you just disappear as if your time together never even existed and that you have ceased to exist. It is an existential annihilation. They are soul destroyers. (sighs) So when summer comes in a few short months, well... Um, You know, it's spring break right now, but um, yeah, summer will be here soon. And it's going to mark two years since my narcopath husband of 15 years abandoned me and the life we shared. It happened without warning in the cruelest and most ruthless way imaginable. And the true measure of the grief that followed is the fact that Still, now, like two years later almost, um, I'm still grappling with my new reality without him. It is common knowledge that empaths are particularly sensitive to other people's pain and suffering, or they feel some compulsive need to heal and to fix what is broken, And maybe they have a propensity towards giving people unlimited chances to prove that they can rise up and become their best selves. Well, they are these empaths, um, which, you know, that term, I, I never heard that term until fairly recently. I don't really know, but, um, Knowing what it is, I guess I consider myself an empath. But I I think that empaths are both gifted and cursed um, because they're the narcopath's favorite snack, you know, the the favorite source of fuel, um, you know, the, uh, the 
they're, you know, they're, they get, they use them for uh, fuel, character traits, and residual benefits. The acquisition, um, the acquisition of these three things um, are, well, they're at the center of everything. They're the driving force behind everything that motivates the personality disordered person to do what they do. They, you know, these people that have personality disorders, they are single minded machines that must acquire these three life sustaining components just for them to live. They have to have it just like we have to have air and water. They're going to do anything and everything to get these, these three things, the fuel, the traits and the benefits. Yeah. They'll do anything to get that because it's, they have to have it. Um, they do it though, without any remorse, compassion, or mercy. None, nada, not a thing. So as for me, I have tried to be a good person. <laughs> it sounds weird to say that, but uh, I've tried to emulate, emulate Christ because I mean, that's what we're supposed to do if you're Christian and, and I've tried to do the kinds of things that I think Jesus would do. His teachings about forgiveness convey a necessity to forgive others if we hope to ever receive forgiveness for our own iniquities. But forgiveness, that's a tricky thing. We can extend the olive branch and turn the other cheek. But at the seat of these gestures, is a simmering resentment and feeling of violation that cannot be placated. What does one do to calm the seething discontent that says, you know, this is simply not going to work for me, or, you know, this morally reprehensible transgression cannot just go unpunished. I can't ignore that. How how am I going to? Live with that. Something must be done. Surely these deeds cannot just continue. I mean, they're going to keep doing this to other people. The perpetrator of misery must be brought to an awareness of what they have done. <laughs> That's what I've thought a million times. There has to be a way to make them feel what they have made you feel. The pain, the fear, the suffering, agony, anxiety, hopelessness, all of that. Oh, an empathetic person cannot stop thinking that if they just knew, if they just understood the magnitude of what they have done, that they would feel sorry and that they would regret their actions and their cruel behavior. But you know what? Somewhere in all of that obsessive rumination about revenge, somewhere in all that, the truth is there. And the truth is this, that they are incapable of feeling what a normal person would feel. They are incapable of human emotions like guilt or empathy or love. You can put a dress on a pig, but you cannot teach them to dance. I don't know if I made that up or even if I got that right. Uh, sometimes I think of little platitudes and 
I don't remember them correctly and then they come out crazy. But uh, you know what I'm going for there, right? <laughs> About the dancing pig. I think it was a pig and I think it was dancing. I don't know. So when I think about the trajectory of my marriage to this mentally impaired man, it feels like sliding on an icy road. I spent a lot of my life up in the Texas panhandle. That's right. Some of you listening from far, far away probably don't know what I'm talking about. But in Texas, it's the part way up north that's almost to Oklahoma. New Mexico is to the left. I don't know what is to the right, but it's way up there. And we have, we have clearly four seasons up in Amarillo, uh, Texas, which is the Texas panhandle. Lots of snow, and I've driven on a lot of snow, icy roads, blizzard conditions through the years. So when, when this happens to you and you're like on an icy road, sometimes you feel like you're losing control and you're picking up speed and you don't even have your foot on the gas. And you're like, how is this happening? What is, you know, uh, what what's going on? And you see yourself heading for a snowbank, a ditch or a cliff, but there's nothing you can do about it. Whether you pump the brakes or turn the wheel, whatever you do, it doesn't matter. Um, there's nothing you can do to gain control of that vehicle and prevent disaster. You're going to crash and you're going to be hurt. And that's just it. Um, the only variable is how bad is that crash going to be and how badly are you going to be hurt? Well, a couple of years ago, I was diagnosed with Stargardt disease. It's a, progressive and degenerative sort of genetic disease that causes some kind of uh, blindness. Um, after receiving the news and the explanation that I would indeed probably become legally blind at some point, um, and my life would probably change exponentially. Um, I knew it was a game changer in many ways. Um, they said it would never be just like a black room of darkness, but things would be blurry enough and distorted enough where it would be limiting as far as driving and, um, you know, um, doing things like that. So uh, I wouldn't be able to probably watch TV like I do or read a book or just, you know, do stuff on my cell phone. I would probably have to adapt and learn some new ways to be uh, a person with low vision and, you know, worst case scenario, maybe very little vision, but probably just low vision. Well, anyway, I remember going out to my car after getting this diagnosis and sitting in the parking lot and I cried for, for a while about what I would lose uh, in the life that I thought I would have as a sighted person, I wept out of fear and sadness. I felt sorry for myself, and I felt angry that something like this had, had become my destiny. I didn't deserve this. Nobody deserves something like that. So it was the only time that I ever cried about it, and after that I just accepted it and decided that I would take whatever comes and make the best of it. 
It was impossible to know if the darkness would come in 10 months or 10 years. So why fret about something that you can't change? And because when you do that, you miss out on the beauty of the present. Mm -hmm. It robs you of that. So I would learn little ways to adjust by habits and day by day, month by month, year by year. I would learn whatever skills I needed to learn to adjust. I thought about all of the things I wanted to see and do with kind of a new urgency following this news. And through all of that, I thought to myself, I'll be okay because I have my partner, my husband, the love of my life. I'm not alone. And he will be there to help me hold my hand, drive me to where I need to go and just, you know, do stuff like find things around the house that I can't see and guide me through the darkness and sort of, you know, be my light. That's what I said to myself. My heart was full of gratitude for my beloved partner. And I thought it's, you know, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be all right. I remember his reaction when I told him about it and how unconcerned he seemed. Little did I know that, you know, this was probably a turning point when he decided that it was time to go. Narcissistic people with antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy or combinations of all three of those things, because those are all cluster B and they all go together as far as disorders go. You know, here, here's something about them that you may not know. They don't take care of people in need. They, they just don't. Um, that's just not something that they can do. He couldn't see himself married to a blind woman, bound to somebody with a disability, or restricted by my limitations that would be impactful to the life that he wanted. I felt his reluctance and pulling away, but at times like that, you know, you get busy with the vagaries of life and the minutiae of the day, and you forget that the tectonic plates are shifting beneath your feet and leading up to this cataclysmic event. Um, yeah, it's happening. You tell yourself that you're solid. You've made it through a lot of bumpy spots together. You think that your marriage is bulletproof. I know I did. We knew people that married, divorced, and married again, all during the time that we were married. And we just thought, ha, the gosh, that sucks to be them. <laughs> or, you know, if it was somebody that we didn't just know as an acquaintance, we, we, we just marveled at how steady and solid and what longevity that we had had. And so I was confident that whatever happened, you know, we were going to stick together. He would be there, but there were too many holes in it. And I just didn't notice that, that, you know, I, it was bleeding out. I tried not to think about the series of disturbing and questionable things that he had done in the past that showed a lack of judgment and a tendency to get spooked, kind of like a wild animal, kind of reacting like a feral dog who's just going to bolt, just bolt and run break the chain, rah, 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 you know, who let the dogs out. Um, they just run wild. This impulsivity and unbridled uh, instincts put everybody at risk from time to time. But that's what I was thinking about him. But 
It was incomprehensible to think he could fail to be there for me after all the years that I stood by him in his times of need. I always defended him, always made excuses for him. Surely he would remember that and, and you know, like through sickness and health, right? Uh, I get that. I would not abandon someone because they got sick. And who would do something like that? That's horrible. I guess I didn't want to see it, so I didn't. It's ironic to think about now <laughs> because how blind I was all those years to his sickness and instability. And then what happens? I literally am going to be blind in real life. Life has a funny way of showing you what you need to know, I guess. Some of the lessons are kind of hard. So after every one of these things that he did, this misconduct, uh, I'd feel riddled with doubts and compelled to ask if everything was okay. I asked him if he was going to always be there beside me. It's like, there's something wrong. Is he not like, is there something you need to tell me? And he always said, of course, I got you. I'm your husband. No worries. I love you. You're my little gummy bear. You're my little rock lobster for life. You know, <laughs> if you don't get the lobster inference, most people don't. I believe lobsters are, they mate for life and they're monogamous. And I, in a world that's hedonistic and has decided it's okay to have multiple revolving door partners and that one person to be intimate with is not enough in that world that we live in. I'm sure I sound silly for saying this, but I believe in one mate forever and ever. No matter what, no matter what. So even when most people would have looked at his past behavior over the years, and they would have said, oh my gosh, there's so many red flags. You know, I, in the rear view mirror, I see them, but at the time, no. And other people, they would have been cautious or at least prepared in some way. But I believed him probably because I wanted to believe him so badly, I would just take his hand and, and everything would be perfect with the world. There was just such a wonderful whatever. So within 18 months after telling him this news, he was gone, just like smoke and ashes taken by the wind. On the day he left, he said, you asked me a million times if I would always be there for you. Over all these years, you just kept asking, and I always said yes. This time, I'm saying no. Who says something like that? What does that even mean? What does it mean? I'm not saying that he left me because I was going blind. I'm not saying that it was the one thing that made him begin to look for my replacement. I just know that the summer he discovered my impending disability, he graduated from pornography addiction to adultery for the first time. You know, the wife always knows. Come on, y'all. You know, the wife, the wife always knows. Um, so for the next 12 months, uh, I think he was developing an exit strategy, trying to figure out, you know, looking for the door. And all this time, he's smiling and hugging and holding and loving and telling me how much I mean to him. You know, intimate dinners and next 
Netflix binge watching and cuddling and snuggling and playfulness and laughter and all the things that a husband and wife do when they're happy and committed to ride it to the end of the road. You know, we took walks in the evening and he held my hand. We stood across the street from our house and we watched the amber glow radiate from the windows as dusk descended upon the neighborhood. And we would always tell each other how lucky we were to have such a beautiful home and such a beautiful life. And I squeezed his hand more tightly, feeling the warmth and comfort that comes from years of loving a person. There was a quiet peace that seemed to be there to comfort. I thought both of us, it was like standing at the ocean and staring into the infinite horizon, knowing that you are not alone in this world. There is a force greater than you and it flows through you like an electrical current. We had worked hard over many years to achieve the life that we enjoyed. It was the closest thing I had ever had to happiness. And for the first time in my whole life, and I was in my 40s when I met him, for the first time in my life, I was not lonely. First time in my life that I was not lonely. And then one morning, soon after waking up, before we even had breakfast, he sat down in the puffy brown chair in our living room and announced that it was over. Just like that, out of the blue, no warning, with the same tone of voice that he used to ask if, hey, is there any avocado toast? Or, hey, have you already fed the cat? I was dumbfounded, speechless, numb with shock and disbelief. I began to feel the tiny little earthquakes rising up from the deep place inside my core as I began the trembling that would become a fierce shaking that would last for a month. Animals have a built-in trauma response to release the trauma from their bodies. They shake. I know probably everybody's seen this, like when you take them to the vet, how they quiver and shake, and then it passes because they release it. It's like a what do you call it, uh, um, inherent, ingrained, uh, instinctual survival tactic um, or response to something. Um, I guess my body was trying to help me too because there were so many things I didn't understand at the time that I wish that I had known then, but I didn't. Um, so... I loved this man more than I loved myself. How could this be? It seemed like a bad dream that he would just do this thing that, um, you know, I just thought I was going to wake up from a nightmare and just say, Hey, I had this crazy dream last night. And then we would go make our favorite lemon ricotta pancakes with the strawberries. The ones we got at Harry's roadhouse in Santa Fe. Um, we always made them together, you know, with that familiar rhythm that only couples in synchronicity over decades achieve. We didn't even have to talk to each other. We went to our stations. He was the strawberry chopper and I was the lemon grater. And then he took out the electric mixer because he knew I had trouble finding it in the shadowy cupboard, you know, with my vision. And I cooked the batter in the bubbling butter and then dusted with the powdered sugar. We knew our roles. 
We played the parts. Mm -hmm. It was a dance, a concert in perfect harmony. So how does someone accept the truth of a moment like that? I stared at him with eyes that still work well enough to see that there was nothing recognizable about him. He had shape-shifted into someone completely foreign, a stranger I didn't know. I kept He kept looking at his phone and the text coming in that made him smile and then look away. Um, like, you know, I'm sure that that was my replacement texting him, you know, saying, have you told her yet? <laughs> what did she do? Is she crying? He seemed impatient, ready to go, ready to get to her and celebrate his new freedom. I never saw it coming. After years of daily I love yous and intimacies and acts of kindness, I could not imagine how we arrived at this moment. I share all that led up to this moment because, you know what, it illustrates the magnitude of what I was asked to forgive. That's why I have shared this story with you of how it happened to me. And so forgiveness is a funny thing. You know, you have such a potpourri of emotional stew that it's just simmering and churning away. It's impossible not to be swept away by these emotions that overwhelm you in a time like that. And now, almost two years later, I can say with complete candor that forgiveness is almost within reach. I've all, I'm almost forgiving him. I think I'll be able to forgive him long before that I'm going to be able to stop loving the person that he was when he was with me. That man, that man, he's gone. He's a chameleon who reflects someone else now. I realized that it was never real, and his world was always a place no one can ever go because it only exists in his head. The problem with empaths is that they just don't give up. They just keep trying and trying to fix the things that are broken in their partner, to heal them, to bring them back from the dead. But I'm not a necromancer, nor a sorceress or a witch. I'm just a woman with a broken heart and a woman who loved the wrong man. A woman who never learned how to be whole person without attaching to someone else. Cheesy as it sounds, you know, he completed me. How could I possibly forgive someone who promised a forever love? for 16 years, and then abandoned me when I needed him the most, discarded me like trash after I had set aside every single thing in my life just to keep him. The most chilling part that day, after he said he didn't want to take care of me or watch me die, that, that, the most incomprehensible part, he said, I don't understand why you don't just Go and be single and enjoy it like I'm going to do. <laughs> it was then, at that moment, that I knew he had never understood what love is. Not for an instant, not once in his life, and that he never would. And because in spite of my attachment issues or addiction to him or whatever, 
I, you know, I did actually know what love is. And I knew one thing, and that was that I loved him organically, completely, without conditions, without limits. I was most likely the only person in his entire life who actually understood selfless love and devotion and offered it freely and abundantly. And the tragedy is that he couldn't even understand what that meant or how love like that is rare and precious and worthy of protection at any price. I know that no one has ever loved me like that, but he's a narcissist with antisocial personality disorder. He's an addict with a splash of sadomasochism to top it all off. He is wounded and damaged beyond repair. His mind and his soul were poisoned so many years ago. The false persona that replaced that vulnerable little boy is not real. It's not his authentic true self. All of it is just a scene in his theater of the absurd. I can't stop the madness and give him a heart that understands grace and mercy and real love. No one gave it to him. He doesn't even know what it is. I picture him as a little boy, maybe six or eight years old, sitting in a den of vipers, naked bodies grinding and groping on a screen, perversion surrounding him, exploited, violated, abused, neglected, shamed, raucous laughter, smoke and the smell of cheap liquor and cigarettes permeating the room. Mother always missing, Dad recently buried six feet in the ground. What did, what he did to stop the noise, the obscenity, the helplessness? It makes me cry every time. 30 years later, after it happened, you know, I, I think about the man. I think about that man. He became twisted, deformed, and I weep for him. I mourn for what he will never feel, what he will never experience. It shatters all the bits and pieces of my heart that still exists. So what else can I do? I forgive him. I forgive him because that's what I'm called to do. I forgive him because he is broken. The things that do not work in him are a trauma response from his early life that was too horrific to survive. I forgive him because he is hurt, and hurt people hurt people. I forgive him because the ending was always there the whole time for us. I was just too blind to see it. A damaged empath and a narcissist sociopath. There's really only one way that could ever end. There was nothing either one of us could do to change that. Nearly 40 years ago, someone once asked me, why do you try to get something from your mother that she doesn't even have to give? You know, that that statement was a dose of reality. And amidst the battle with my mentally ill mother, you know, she's her illness was the root of all of my dysfunction. 
it was the impetus, the catalyst that sort of set off this quest that I have spent my entire life on trying to find people who were mentally ill and fix them. If I can fix them, it's like I fixed her. And I, I never could fix my mother, but, and you know, I couldn't fix anybody else either. But, um, you know, I wasn't quite ready to hear that. And then they said to me, you know, she doesn't even know what it is and she doesn't have it to give. So why do you keep trying to get it from her? You just have to accept that, you know, she's not capable of giving you what you need. She doesn't have it and she can't give you something that she doesn't have. I continued the circular arguments and futile, futile dialogue with my mother until the day she died. She never heard me. She never saw me. And I never got what I needed from her, what I needed her to give me. But I forgave her because she was mentally unwell and deeply impaired and so what else could I do? Eventually, we must let our, our hearts mend enough to show grace and mercy to those who have failed us the most. We repeat the patterns in our life that are unresolved. We keep coming back to the table thinking that we're going to be fed when the table is empty and no one is there and no one is coming like the dog who curls up at his master's feet, even though that master hurts him and beats him and abuses him and starves him. There's just that hope that next time, just the next time, it'll be different. We tell ourselves those tiny little lies that allow us to keep hope. Next time, next time it will be better. And there will be Feasting instead of famine. Some people just cannot be fixed. As for my husband who died that day in June 2019, he was always dead, just like my sad, pitiful mother. He could not, cannot give me something that he does not have to give. He doesn't even know what it is. How could he possibly give it to me? So of course, I forgive him. He is incapable of knowing what is real. He has to continue living his fantasy life in his magical universe. I dream of seeing him again one day in another time and place. And in that place, he will be healed and he will love me and we will hold hands again and walk side by side on the beach and we will gaze at the infinite horizon and feel that peace, you know, that comfort, that Halcyon, that place of refuge, that sanctuary, that oneness, 
will feel that. The person that I have the most trouble forgiving is me. I wasted so much time for so many years, and there was so much collateral damage. The family I loved was irrevocably hurt because I could not give up on this futile quest to transform a glittery prince of the dark into a good man of the light. To save him from the demons that eventually slithered into the cracks in his soul and in his mind and carried him away. You know, to save him from that, I sacrificed everything. He simply did not have 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 anything to give except mirroring me except a kindness and a sweetness that was a tool that he used to ensnare to enmesh to imprint i was believing in a person who did not exist i was trusting a love that was only a mirage so maybe I can forgive myself sometime for being so foolish and believing that love could conquer everything and that the power of faith in the people we love will somehow redeem them and make a miracle happen. A few weeks after he left, he texted me on the 4th of July and he said, the fireworks are coming. Go look up at the sky. I hope you can enjoy them and find some happiness. I drank in his smooth and delicious voice, and then I curled up tighter in our bed, heart pounding, gasping breath, shaking and trembling to the bone, physically shaking with the powerful earthquakes that rocked my body for weeks. I still don't look up at the sky. I still don't know how to live without him. At least not yet. We each have our own path. Maybe God has something else in store for him. Maybe he just wants me to give him back. Because it's not my job to fix him. And now, I just need to work on fixing myself. That's the journey that I must take. So I forgive them all. What else can I do? They did not know what they were doing. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.